Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. If it's Monday, irresponsible and unacceptable. Members of the president's own party publicly rebuke the White House after the FBI seizes even more classified material from President Biden's Delaware home. Plus, Lunar New Year massacre. Investigators, victims and residents are all searching for answers after a gunman opened fire on a Los Angeles area dance hall over the weekend. One of the worst mass shootings in California's history. And a case of conflict and looming chaos. It's back to business as usual on Capitol Hill as a divided Congress fights over the debt limit. And who will serve on key committees? Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker in Washington, where the White House now finds itself facing growing criticism from Republicans and Democrats after even more classified material was discovered at President Biden's Delaware home. Over the weekend, the president's attorneys disclosed that the FBI had conducted a 13-hour search of the president's Wilmington, Delaware home on Friday. Agents found an additional six items consisting of documents with classification markings, according to the president's personal counsel. The White House has not disclosed what those items were. Critically, we do not know how many classified documents have actually been found. The description of this latest batch of six items could mean six folders, six boxes, or six hard drives containing dozens, even hundreds of classified documents. We just don't know. Still, the president's now the fourth known discovery of classified material at Mr. Biden's home or office. The president ignored shouted questions about those documents upon returning to Washington today. But the White House counsel's office is expected to brief reporters this hour and again is insisting it's cooperating with investigators. Look, I think the American people are smart enough to understand what's going on here. And when it comes to his, you know, the standing of the president with the American people, they can see that he is taking this course of action of believing in the rule of law and being cooperative with the Justice Department. And when it comes to his standing, they also know that he's focusing on the priorities that matter to them. Two Senate Democrats, Joe Manchin and Dick Durbin, are now publicly criticizing the White House. Oh, I think he should have a lot of regrets. Yeah, I would, I would think that. I said, whoever's responsible. I mean, if I hold people accountable and I use whether it be my chief of staff or my, you know, my uh, my staff mm-hmm. who's, who, that we're doing this and I'm looking at, then I'm going to hold someone accountable. But right. basically, the buck stops with me. To think that any of them ended up uh, in, in, in boxes uh, in storage one place or the other is just unacceptable. Now, unlike the FBI's search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last summer, the White House says it specifically invited the FBI to search the premises and that a search warrant wasn't issued. All of this comes at a pivotal point in the Biden presidency as he prepares to deliver the State of the Union in just two weeks with an expected re-election announcement after that. And it's all happening amid a West Wing shakeup with sources telling NBC News President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, is expected to step down in the coming weeks. He will be replaced by someone who's developed a reputation as something of a Mr. Fix-It, Jeff Zients, who recently oversaw the government's coronavirus emergency response. Joining me now with the very latest on these developments, NBC's Mike Mamley outside the White House and with me on set, NBC Justice and Intelligence correspondent Ken Delanian. Mike, I want to start with you. And I know that a briefing was underway there at the White House. So what is the very latest that the White House is saying about all of this? Well, Kristen, it won't surprise you to learn that Corrine Jean-Pierre today from the podium at the White House referred most of the questions that we have, and we have a long list of them about what happened over the weekend uh, to the White House Counsel's Office, and we'll get potentially some more answers when we get a briefing from representatives from the Counsel's Office in just a few minutes. But let's just underscore the really significant news from over the weekend, the fact that the sitting president of the United States had his personal residence search by the federal, uh, the Justice Department officials over on Friday 
not just the fact that it happened. It took more than 12 hours going through, according to the statement from the president's own lawyer, Bob Bauer, everything from memorabilia to scheduling uh, lists, to-do lists, uh, and obviously a, a long trove of handwritten notes and other documents as well. They took into their possession and they used the term items. We use that term notably, not uh, documents in this case, because that's what they deemed to be in the purview of the DOJ investigation. And I think most significantly, Kristen, the fact that not just documents from the time when Biden served as vice president, but also documents from his time in the U.S. Senate. This, I think we're at a moment, Kristen, when even as it's significant that the White House and his lawyers are arguing that they invited the DOJ uh, officials in for this search, that this was not the, re the result of a warrant, it does sort of represent a, a pivot point from when the Biden team has had at least some control over their discovery of these documents to a point when it's the special counsel who's going to be calling the shots completely here. And so the fact that they are talking about items from his time as a senator, I think represents the fact that this investigation can go in all sorts of ways beyond what we all were talking about just a few weeks ago when this first broke, which was a few pages of documents from his office in the uh, documents from his final days as vice president to a potentially much longer and much wider period of time. Absolutely. I think a lot of eyebrows were raised when we saw that those documents date back to his time at the Senate. You know, Mike, and I appreciate your powering through your live shot despite the sirens blaring <laughs> behind you. I do want to ask you about what we heard from his Democratic allies over the weekend, because I was really struck and I heard this in my private conversations with Democrats as well, which is that when he came out and said, there's no there there, that I have no regrets, they questioned that messaging coming from the president himself, because this is so early on in a special counsel investigation. And then uh, just hours after I had some of those conversations, of course, we learned that his Wilmington home had been searched by the FBI. What are his allies saying about the messaging coming from the White House and from the president himself, Mike? Well, the president said there was no there there. Well, FBI investigators found more there there at the president's personal residence. And if there are no regrets, Democrats clearly think the president should have some at this point about what has transpired here. It is interesting that, that we didn't hear from Karine Jean-Pierre any questions about their reaction to some of these questions coming from Democrats. But if we want to talk, Kristen, about all the ways in which this document probe involving President Biden is different from the probe into the former president, Donald Trump, one of the clear, uh, I think, differences just this example provides is the fact that Democrats are going to be more likely to express concern and already are than potentially we have seen over time for Republicans who either sidestepped or defended President Trump through the myriad of investigations uh, during his presidency and since then. And that's a concern because you know the White House felt very good coming out of the midterms that a lot of the doubts about Biden as the leader of the Democratic ticket in 2024 were put to rest by the fact that Democrats had a largely successful, uh, at least defined historical trends, midterm elections. And now, as the president wants to launch his reelection campaign on the strongest possible footing, he wants to speak to the nation at the State of the Union address, not as a candidate, but as a president. Well, a lot of Democrats are going to see him on that rostrum and worry that he's the target of a, a DOJ probe. Uh, and that's going to really hurt the Democrats' ability to speak to the terms that they want. They still think they have a strong message to make. And the question is, if he's the right messenger to do it at this point. Yeah, Mike, it's such an important point. And of course, it all comes amid a shakeup inside the West Wing. Ron Klain, the current chief of staff, will be out in the coming weeks. Jeff Zients, who oversaw the coronavirus response, will take over that critical role at this critical moment. Ken, let me turn to you and let's talk about some of the legal questions swirling mm. around all of this. I mean, you can't fit them on one sheet of paper, right? And one of the top ones is we just don't know how many actual classified documents we are talking about. What are the key questions for you right now? Well, the way that that statement from Bob Bauer, the president's attorney, was worded over the weekend was so curious. Uh, six items containing documents with classified markings, an unspecified number of documents. So what are we talking about here? Six banker boxes full of hundreds of documents, six electronic devices. They just left that question open, and it's not clear to me or to my, the sources that I'm talking to 
why they did that. What would the reason be behind not being very specific? It clearly wasn't six classified documents, so they would have just said that. The other thing here is this is a pretty, leaving aside the question of criminality, this is a significant spill of classified information. Mm. This is now the fourth discovery of classified documents, as Mike said, going back to potentially uh, President Biden's time in the Senate, which goes back decades. So, at the very least, somebody was reckless, sloppy. It's not how the system's supposed to work. So that's, if nothing else, that's the there at the center of this. And it's a big deal. And, and for, for Joe Biden to be writing off like that, a lot of people who, in my world, in the national security world, are very troubled by that. Yeah, and Senator Manchin on Meet the Press over the weekend was making the point, it's very hard to actually lead the Senate with a classified document. So that undoubtedly will be one of the key questions. Ken, what do we know about the level of classification and how might that factor into a DOJ investigation? It's important, right? And, and, and not only just the level, because there's a lot of overclassification in the government. So newspaper articles have been classified top secret SCI if they relate to, say, a drone strike that just by officials having them might confirm a classified program. So, but we know from our own reporting that at least one of these documents found was, was that designation, the highest level of classification, mm-hmm. top secret. That's a big deal. Those documents are not supposed to be out of special facilities. Uh, you know, it, it, a lot depends on how dated this information was. Is it still a secret? And, and we may never know the answers to some of those questions. All right. Ken Delanian, thank you so much. And Mike Memoli beforehand, great way to start us off. I know it was a busy weekend for you. It will continue to be a busy several weeks ahead. Thank you. And uh, we're going to actually have Ken stick around because I have more questions for him. But I have another developing story I want to speak to you about. But first, joining me now to discuss what this might mean for the president's legal liability as former federal prosecutor and NBC News legal analyst, Carol Lamb. Thank you so much, Carol, for joining us. I really appreciate it. So let's just start right there. How does this latest discovery, how does the fact that the FBI searched the president's Wilmington home, how does that add to the legal peril for the president? Well, at this point, I don't think that the Biden team really had any choice. Uh, they, they keep finding things and there was increasing criticism that uh, the attorneys for the president who were doing the search did not have classified clearance, top secret clearance. And so they really thought they just had to bite the bullet and ask the FBI to come in and do the search, presumably with agents who did have clearance. So that's not that much of a surprise to me. And I don't think it really affects the outcome of the case. I will address what um, what Ken said in his very good wrap up of, of what had happened, that one of the reasons that the things that were taken might have been described in this very vague way, items containing classified documents, is because that may be all the president's team knows at this point. That is the way FBI agents often put on the inventory of items they seize. That's the way they describe it. Remember, they're doing a search. They don't know what they're going to come up with, and they may have just characterized it that way on the inventory, which is left at the premises that was searched. So that may ju- it may literally be that Biden's team does not know what exactly was taken at this point from the president's residence. But what does this mean in terms of what the man who is ultimately going to make the decision, Merrick Garland, with respect to both of these special counsel investigations, what does it mean in terms of possibly ultimate charges? And I think what this means is that the bar has now gotten so high that for either man involved here, it's either going to be, it's not just a question of did they knowingly have these items in their possession or did they become aware of it? It is now going to be what was in those documents and also were they, what is their direct evidence that they intended to use these documents for some unauthorized or even nefarious pur- purpose in the future. I think that's where this discretionary decision is going to head. Carol, I just want to put a fine point on what you're saying, and you actually led me to my next question, just to be very clear for the folks who are watching right now. Is the key question for investigators for both of current and former president going to be a matter of intent? Is that going to be what determines whether there was criminality and not just knowledge? And let me be clear about the answer to that. To find a technical violation of some of these laws that were listed in the case of former President Trump in the search warrant itself, it may not be necessary to 
prove intent to use these documents in some nefar for some nefarious purpose in the future. Just knowing that you had them and failing to return them could be enough. But I think for Merrick Garland, given the parallels here now, that would be so easy to to draw for a defense attorney. I think I think one of the issues that is going to become important for him in his discretionary call whether to bring any charges against either gentleman. Does, he is going to have to look at intent, yes. Does the does the level of classification play a role in the ultimate decision about whether there was criminality? It certainly plays a role in terms of the sensitivity and the nature of the documents and therefore what is the danger to the United States in terms of the dis disclosure of those documents. But remember, it also causes an issue ultimately for trial because if these documents are so sensitive, the defense can demand that they be allowed to look at these documents and the jurors as well. And if a judge agrees with them, that causes a real problem for the government. And cases have been declined for that reason, that they simply can't risk the further exposure of those documents. And Carol, just very quickly, here we are in this extraordinary moment where you have a current and former president being investigated by a special counsel. Do you think that they will wait until both investigations are complete to determine whether there will be charges against either current or former president? A very good question. It's hard to say. If they if they were to come up with really strong evidence uh, of the type that I've been just describing in the past few minutes, they may not wait. But but it seems to me prudent that at least a substantial portion of both investigations would be concluded. This is just one of those situations where the parallels, um, unfortunately, are just too strong. And Merrick Garland is going to want to make sure that the decision he makes is for the good of the whole country as well, not just whether the Department of Justice can win a case. Carol Lamb, it is a momentous and complicated moment that we are in. Thank you for helping us to understand it a little bit better. We really appreciate it. And Ken, I want to go back to you. I promised I would. Here we are. <laughs> um, you're covering another developing story. A former FBI official was arrested. Let me just read what he's uh, alleged to have done. Allegedly for money laundering, violating Russian sanctions, and taking money from a former foreign agent. What do we know about this? This is a shocking case, Kristen. Uh, Charles McGonigal is his name. He, by the way, pleaded not guilty just moments ago and was released on a half a million dollars bail, allowed to travel inside the United States, but needs permission to leave the country. He was a longtime and high-ranking FBI official who head, headed the New York Counterintelligence Office. So his job, in part, was to protect the country from foreign influence. But these charges, both brought in New York and D.C., two separate indictments, accuse him of profiting from foreign influence, both while he was in the FBI and then later after he left. They say that he took $225,000 while an FBI agent from a former former foreign intelligence official uh, and didn't disclose that on his uh, form to the FBI and had a conflict of interest. And then after he left, he's accused of helping a Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, evade U.S. sanctions. And the indictment points out he had classified information about Deripaska while he was still in the government, it appears to have traded on that after he left. So a very serious case. Ken, quickly, is there any indication that counterintelligence may have been compromised by him? The indictments don't say that explicitly, but they certainly raise that question, and that's the subject of our future reporting, Chris. Wow. This is a, just a stunning development. All right, Ken Delaney, and thank you so much. Really appreciate your covering all of the developing stories for us. Before we go to break, an update. Four members of the extremist group, the Oath Keepers, were just found guilty of seditious conspiracy this afternoon for their roles in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The jury delivered a verdict after a five-week trial where prosecutors argued the defendants participated in a conspiracy to stop the transfer of power. This is the second group of Oath Keepers to be found guilty of seditious conspiracy after the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, was convicted alongside another member in October. Coming up, investigators hunt for answers amid the aftermath of another horrific mass shooting. This one in Monterey Park, California, where a gunman killed 11 people at an event celebrating the Lunar New Year. We'll have the very latest from the ground next. Plus, Congress and conflict return to the Capitol as House Republicans battle the White House and Democrats over the debt limit and key committee posts. You're watching Meet the Press now. Stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back. Another community in America is left reeling after another senseless mass shooting. Last hour, officials in California announcing that one of the individuals who was in the hospital has succumbed to their injuries, bringing the total death toll to 11. On Saturday, as community members gathered to celebrate the Lunar New Year, a gunman opened fire in a dance hall in Monterey Park, California. Then minutes later, the suspect arrived at a second dance hall a short distance away, but was disarmed before he was able to start shooting. That man who took action is being hailed as a hero. He spoke to Lester Holt about that moment. Take a listen. Did he say anything to you? No, that was the scary part. When, when he came in, he said nothing. His face was very stoic. The expressions were mostly in his eyes, looking around, finding, trying to find people, trying to scout the area for other people. So how did you decide what to do? Well, there was a moment I actually froze up because I, was, I had the belief that I was going to die. Like, my life was ending here at that very moment. But something, something amazing happened in America, actually. He, he started to uh, try to prep his weapons so he could shoot everybody. But then it, came, it dawned on me that this was the moment to disarm him. I could do something here that could protect everybody and potentially save myself. Wow, that is just unbelievable. A miracle indeed. The suspected shooter, a 72-year-old man, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on Sunday as law enforcement closed in on him inside a white van tied to the shooting. Police have yet to determine the motive behind this shooting. Now, yesterday, President Biden ordered flags to be flown at half-staff in honor of the victims. For more on the latest on this shooting, I am joined now by NBC News correspondent Steve Patterson, who is on the ground there. Steve, I know you've been talking to officials there what are you learning? What's the very latest? Uh, the latest at this hour, Kristen, unfortunately, is the update in the death toll. As you reported, now 11 dead. We're getting that from a nearby medical center, LAC, USC. They were reporting that of the four victims that they had in their custody, one has succumbed to what they describe as extensive injuries. That leaves of the three remaining patients, uh, two are recovering and one in serious condition. Uh, so another tragedy today. Meanwhile, the investigation here continues. It is squarely now, as you might imagine, on a motive. Police want to know why this happened. They know how this happened. Of course, this 72-year-old uh, coming to this ballroom Saturday night shortly after about 10 o'clock taking aim. There are about 50 people maybe inside that ballroom uh, or so. They, you know, killing 20, uh, injuring, uh, you know, a few victims and killing 11 with that updated death toll. Then moving to nearby Alhambra about 20 minutes after this shooting. Investigators say planned to do the same thing, but he was stopped by that hero that you just mentioned, a man in his 20s who disarmed the suspect. I want to speak about that a little bit. The, uh, the weapon that was taken from that scene was a semi-automatic assault-style pistol with an extended magazine, illegal in the state of California. We know investigators use that to trace to the suspect, identifying the suspect. They also tracked the white van from that scene to Torrance, also nearby, about 30 miles from here, where he was cornered, and they found him with that self-inflicted gunshot wound. So the how is known. The why is what investigators are looking into now. We know they're executing a search warrant at his home in Hemet, 
uh, California, which is not too far from here uh, as well. And they are looking into things that witnesses and people that knew him are saying, obviously, with his age and the fact that he's known to this community, they're looking at a personal connection. His ex-wife has given statements to the press. She's saying that they met maybe 20 years ago or so at this ballroom and that ever since then, he's been a part-time instructor. So very well known to this community. They're looking at connections here and the second scene in Alhambra. But again, another day of tragedy with that updated death toll. We know that there is a press conference scheduled for about an hour from now with the sheriff's department. We expect to learn a whole lot more about this situation and maybe more about a motive. That's what everybody wants to know here. They, they sure do, Steve. And I know you will be all over that press conference. You've been on the ground there. You've been talking to people. This was a community that was coming together to celebrate the Lunar New Year after years of enduring COVID. I had read that they'd come together after being apart for so long. And that was one of the things that was making this Lunar New Year so special. And then this happens ripping apart that community. Talk to me about how people are holding up there on the ground in the wake of this tragedy. Well, it's not just COVID, Kristen. You know, in the wake of, of everything that happened with the pandemic, we saw these increase of attacks on the AAPI community. So they've had to deal with almost a dual tragedy on top of the fact that this shooting now occurred. One woman uh, spoke to a producer who's standing right next to me, uh, just came to deliver flowers to the scene, had no connection to the ballroom, was not in there at the time, just wanted to bring her son to remind him that they can still be strong, to show their resolve in the face of all this, but they are going through it. I mean, I think it is abject shock. You have to remember this community, uh, one of the safest, thought to be one of the safest in the country, 65% Asian American, um, and really a place that hasn't experienced a tragedy on this level. So I think there is a whole lot of shock here. There's a lot of resolve though. People are strong. They say they will move on from this, uh, that this is not something that is gonna keep the community down. Uh, and celebrations, while the one that was canceled here was supposed to be a two-day event canceled for Sunday. There are several still in this area going on, so you can't keep the people here down. Still uh, such a tragedy. Kristen? It, it is indeed, and your reporting has just uh, really been remarkable coming from there, Steve. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Please continue to keep us updated. Still ahead, I will speak one-on-one -on -one with California Democrat and former Monterey Park Mayor who has lived in the community for nearly 40 years. Congresswoman Judy Chu joins us ahead. And tonight, Lester Holt will be live on the ground covering this story in Monterey Park on Nightly News. You do not want to miss that coverage. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Another day, a round of sniping on Capitol Hill on an issue that could wreak havoc with the global economy. With Congress back in session, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer went to the floor moments ago to challenge Republicans to identify which specific spending cuts they are calling for ahead of the early June deadline to raise the debt limit. According to Schumer, Republicans have been reaping political benefits for calling for spending decreases without saying where they are actually willing to cut. Take a listen to what he had to say. If Republicans want to show that they can govern effectively, they're off to a pretty poor start. It's not enough to hide behind the old GOP talking point about wasteful spending. When you're in the majority, substance counts. If Republicans are talking about draconian cuts, they have an obligation to show Americans what those cuts are and let the public react. Joining me now on set is Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Faz Shakur, senior advisor to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and Republican strategist and an NBC News political analyst, Rick Tyler. Thanks to all of you for being here. Happy Monday. No shortage of topics to discuss. Lisa, let me start with you. The debt ceiling. We have seen these fights before. Where does this one stand right now? This looks like it's going to be messy, and I'll give you two reasons for that. One is that Republicans don't really have a plan for how they, what they want. They haven't, they don't have clear asks. And some of the Republicans who are really getting us to the point of saying they might block the debt ceiling, what they really want are changes in the process. And in, to a degree, they've already gotten that. So that's going to be tricky. The other thing I'm paying attention to is I believe the base support on both sides is supporting the moving both parties away from any kind of agreement. Republicans are feeling more and more justified about 
about risking the debt ceiling. So I think it's going to be a long and very potentially dangerous few months. Yeah, like many fights, it will likely come down to the wire. You bring me to an important point, though, which is where are the cuts? What do Republicans actually want to see? Chuck, over the weekend on Sunday, pressed Nancy Mace to identify some cuts. Take a listen to what she had to say. Do you have one thing you're ready to put on the table as a spending cut that you think both parties can accept? Well, I think... Well, obviously no cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. That's a non-starter for either side. Um, But otherwise, it's up to, I would lean on the agency heads. Rick, how problematic is the argument that we want cuts? But Nancy Mace is saying, I'm going to lean on the agency heads to identify the cuts. Is that sustainable? Well, I think it's problematic in messaging because she didn't have one. (laughs) But um, look, the... The, the, the debt ceiling is not a place to negotiate cuts, and now the Democrats are taking advantage of this by saying exactly that. What, what, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have limited smaller government. That's what the, you, the, govern, the Republicans used to believe that. I'm not quite sure they believe that anymore, so it falls a little bit on, on deaf ears with me. Um, but I think you're exactly right. They want uh, process and control, but this, again, is not the place to, to fight that. I don't agree with that. I think they they are going to, uh, with negotiation, I think they are going to negotiate, particularly because Joe Biden is at his core a legislator mm. and legislators who've been around a long time. It's in their uh, DNA to negotiate. So they will negotiate and compromise because who, especially if, in fact, uh, they head down this road and we have uh, co- economic consequences. It will be the, it will be Democrats and Republicans who pay for this. Nobody wins in this. Republicans have more to lose, uh, but the Democrats will pay too. You're right to point that out about President Biden, though. And he said, we're going to talk to them. And Faz, Republicans jumped all over that and said, look, he's going to negotiate. He's going to negotiate. I mean, is it realistic for the White House to say, we're not going to negotiate? Can they continue to dig in? Well, there's other forms of negotiation. I think Rick was getting at it. You can mm-hmm. get outside the debt ceiling and talk about processes or commissions. We've seen those before. As someone who's come to this from a progressive point of view, I hated a lot of those commissions. They tend to be roundabout ways of getting at, quote-unquote, entitlement reforms, cutting people's earned benefits to Social Security and Medicare. It's just another way of trying to do it. That's why I don't like those processes. That said, it's still a different kind of process than trying to hold the debt ceiling hostage as a way to get at it. And I think the president's on strong ground to say there'll be nothing uh, attached to the debt ceiling. It must be done cleanly. Seems like an easy battle to pick and to win. And the Republicans right now, I don't think, have a desire for an alternative course. Well, it's interesting. Over the weekend, Senator Manchin said that he thinks the White House should negotiate. And he said he's actually open to increasing the payroll tax. Well, and he's he's a good good example of... uh, That's a Bernie Sanders position, though. Right. If if, if you put that on the table, you're not talking about cuts to Medicare or Social Security. You're actually talking about increasing funding to them to extend the life of them. Now, if we're talking about improving Social Security, there's plenty of great ideas. And I I think those could be done in a way outside of a debt ceiling increase that, again, fosters bipartisan support and does it to uh, some kind of a process. Yeah, you're smirking. Oh, go ahead. Go I, ahead. Say, I, think, I think for sure, and to be clear, there will be negotiations. And I think there was a real messaging mistake by the White House there mm. because everyone knows you're going to negotiate in some form. And almost everyone agrees we really do have a debt problem. You know, mm. that that's a bipartisan sentiment. And President Biden would agree with that. So why didn't they say instead the debt ceiling must be raised? That's it we will consider talking about our spending and taxing separately. But instead, the no negotiation stance reads strange to a lot of people, I think. Rick, how would that have come off to Republicans? Yeah, my smirk was coming off. I do agree there's a lot of reforms (laughs) Social Security. I don't think we'd agree on any of them, but the the current, at least the current system uh, is not sustainable in its current form. But having said that, I I don't think that debt ceiling, again, is not the, that's not the place to negotiate all of this, uh, reforming Social Security. There should be uh, lots of efforts to do all of those things. Uh, but it doesn't look good on the, on the, I think, on the Republicans' part that they're willing to put the economy at risk uh, to not raise the debt ceiling. You know, one of the things that I heard over the weekend just in talking to folks is what leverage does McCarthy have? Because how can he sit down and guarantee a deal, Lisa, when we saw how fractured his caucus is just to elect him to the speakership? I mean, how can he say to the White House, you've got a deal? And I'm going to deliver the votes. That's right. In Congress, you get leverage from two things, from your votes and from the perception of your strength as a leader. Nancy Pelosi did not have the strength of votes, but she had 
a great deal of strength and perception and a great deal of consistency in how she approached things. McCarthy is already starting out by everyone saying he can't count votes. He's someone who will wobble. That really undermines his position mm -hmm. from go. And I think he's going to have to decide at some point, does he support something that all of these holdouts will not, that will vote against later down the road? I want to talk about committee assignments, but just very quickly, Rick, what role do you think McConnell can play in this? Oh, he'll play a key role. Uh, because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want the government to default, and he's been around a long time, and he knows uh, the president very, very well, uh, and he will be the, the the negotiation. By the way, it's not just the Republicans who, because most of the Republicans would pass a debt ceiling, and there's clearly enough Democrats and and Republicans to pass a debt ceiling like today immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's and and Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House, not Speaker of the Republicans. I mean, Rick is urging him and I agree to get the partnership with the Democrats. So you put up a bill and that means standing up to the right flank, which Boehner and Paul Ryan, you know, were ridden out of town by their right flanks or at least made the jobs really unsatisfying for each of them. And at some point, I think Kevin McCarthy would be well advised to say, hey, listen, you can't let these guys run your show. You're going to have to put up something early on to say, if you aren't with my program, then I'm going to go find the votes. Yeah, and very quickly, Lisa, before we move on, because I want to get to uh, the Senate race in Arizona, you have this fight over committee mm -hmm. assignments with Leader McCarthy essentially saying that he wants to block uh, Adam Schiff right. um, from serving on the Intelligence Committee, uh, as well as Eric Swalwell. That's a great Talk example. A it's that. not clear that he has the votes to do that, even to vote Adam Schiff. And there may be different amounts of votes for Adam Schiff from Republicans vote blocking him versus blocking Eric Swalwell. Two very different concerns. Meanwhile, we're also waiting for Republicans to choose their, all of their committees. The Key Rules Ooh. Committee, which was part of the whole speaker sort of debacle. Still not clear who of those holdouts, what Freedom Caucus members will be on that. The process is, quote, fluid. And we all know what that means. They can't quite figure it out. So yet. all of this happening against the backdrop of 2024. Ruben Gallego, yeah. representative, announcing he's throwing his hat into the ring in Arizona after Senator Sinema uh, switched her party to independent. So this could be a three-way race, Faz. What, what a Democrat. Not great. Not great for Democrats. I think, you know, Gallego would win, I think, in a one-to-one match up with a Republican. All Senator Sima would be doing at this point is spoiling a chance of a Democrat. I assume she would take more from a Democrat than a Republican if she were a third party candidate in a general election. So I hope as she sees the polling over the next few months that have her at 10 percent or less that she thinks about a different way mm. forward for herself. Rick, it could be a good climate for a moderate Republican to get in. Do you think that that happens or do you think <laughs> they're smart? Who is he? Right, get into this. Absolutely right that uh, the Democrat in a three-way race is going to hand it to the Republicans and the, De and the Democrats are already uh, defending 23 races. And so Arizona is a must win for them to maintain control of the Senate. And so this is, I mean, anything can happen. But, but I can't resist. McCarthy should hold uh, Swalwell and... and uh, um, um, Adam Schiff. Schiff. Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff to to the uh, to the Santos standard, and if if he can hold him to that standard, then I think that he should probably let them keep. <laughs> that, their that's a whole other <laughs> panel discussion, Rick. Very very quickly, yeah. Senator Sinema hasn't announced right. that she's running that's for right. election as an independent. No. That's right. I think it's she really. And this is my reporting that she's been back and forth over the years on that question. She's a fighter, so almost I think Gallego might encourage her to keep going, but I'm not sure she really feels like her future is in the U.S. Senate necessarily. Yeah. All right. Well, we continue to watch this and we'll come back to discuss George Santos because there's plenty to discuss there. Lisa Fazenrick, thank you for a great conversation. Still to come, reports of distrust and divisions hang over the Supreme Court as it finally releases its first decision of the term after an unusually slow start. We'll have the details next. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. The Supreme Court handed down its first decision of the judicial term today, not just of this year, of the entire 2022-2023 term. The justices ruled unanimously against a Navy veteran in a technical dispute over disability benefits. Usually the first decision comes down in December, meaning the court is nearly a month behind schedule. Four months into its nine-month term, the delay is another unusual moment in what has been a very abnormal year for the Supreme Court. Today's decision comes just days after the court announced the findings, or lack thereof, of its internal investigation into the leak of the draft of the Dobbs abortion case last May. NBC News senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett joins me with more on today's decision. Laura, welcome to NBC. It's Great to be my with chance you. to welcome <laughs> you, you here. We are thrilled that you are here. Thanks. So talk about this 
delay. What do you make of the fact that it's coming so late into the term? Was it because of this internal investigation over the leak? The silence was so striking. I mean, it, to go so long, as you said, a historic length of period to have not heard anything. We expected today to get a bunch of opinions, maybe not the most consequential ones, but we thought we'd see at least a few. Not so much. So the question is, what gives? And I think that investigative report that we saw last week could shed some light on what's going on behind the scenes, because part of that report was explaining how lax the record keeping is. People yeah. are taking documents home. So to the extent that they've been sort of hardening or shoring up some of those lax systems, maybe that's why things are taking so long. Maybe not. Maybe it's just they can't reach consensus on some things because of that Dob leak. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I do want to talk to you about the investigation. This was an internal investigation. They did not determine who was behind the leak, which was unsatisfying for a lot of people. They did interview the justices, but not under oath. What are some of your big takeaways from the investigation? What do you think the impact will be on the court? If they really wanted to get to the bottom of who was actually behind this thing that they said was the worst thing that had happened in modern history to the court, there were a lot of things they could have done that they didn't do. Namely, they could have gotten the FBI in there. They couldn't have, you know, sort of done a deeper dive instead of having an internal investigation by essentially the person who just watches over security. So I think there are real questions about why they chose to go another route. Now, having said that, what they did do was quite thorough. They did a number of interviews. They searched people's phones. But again, if they really wanted to get to the bottom of it, it seems like there were other ways they could have gone about it. And they didn't make the justices sign affidavits, which I should mention. They did make other people do. Mm. They didn't do it for the justices. One of the things that struck me is that you had some of the people who were interviewed acknowledge, yes, I told my spouse, I told my partner about this draft decision. What do you expect will be the impact, the crackdown on security, if you will? Will there be one? Are you expecting to see stiffer standards? Yeah, I think you can see the report outline some steps that you could take numbly. You know, when you and I go to print things here at work, you actually have to scan your badge. They're not doing that at the Supreme Court, which, right. considering how sacred these documents are, it's pretty incredible yeah. how lax the record-keeping had been. We'll see what the effect, if any, it has. But for an institution that shrouds itself in trust and honor and real secrecy, I think this has really shaken its core because of that trust. They had certainly gotten away with the honor system for so long, which it appears they can't anymore. I'm glad you characterize it that way. Just very quickly, are you expecting, because the court has been shaken to its core, will this be a more tense season for the court and session? I think so. And I think you've already seen the justices say that outside of court. You've seen them talk about sort of how much of an impact it's had and a detrimental one it's had. Now, whether it has for court relations itself, we're not behind the scenes. We don't know for sure. But you can see in sort of the questioning already of what's happening on the bench that there's some bristling there. There's something going on behind the scenes and it's, it's shaken them. Well, it's going to be a fascinating year ahead. Lord sure. Chair, we are so glad to have you here. Thanks one so of much. many times we'll be sitting together. I hope so. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you. Good to see you. Up next, Congresswoman Judy Chu joins me one-on-one. -on -one. But first, in today's Meet the Press Minute, nearly a decade ago, in April 2013, Senators Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey tried and failed to pass a bill requiring background checks to buy a gun at a show or online. Here's Senator Toomey five years later still advocating for that legislation following the February 2018 shooting in Parkland, Florida. There's no part of the law that would have mandated that information make it into the background check system. How would your bill deal with that? Uh, it wouldn't. You know, the, the fact is the bill that Joe Manchin and I introduced and that we still support, uh, Chuck, it's not going to solve all problems, and we never suggest that it would. And one of the challenges that we face is what to do about someone who's clearly mentally deranged, but they haven't acted out yet in a way that allows you to adjudicate them as dangerously mentally ill or they haven't committed a crime. Clearly, in this case, there were all kinds of warning signs that were, that were advertised, right? They were communicated right. and nothing was done. That's a problem. I think there's a, an important discussion to be had about a temporary restraining order on somebody who's uh, evidencing some serious uh, dangerous behavior. There'd have to be due process right. so that that couldn't be used as a weapon against someone uh, inappropriately. Uh, but uh, look, our legislation, I think, would be very constructive. I still support it, but I'm not going to suggest it would solve all problems. And welcome back. We are going to continue with today's panel. We are hoping to interview Congresswoman Judy Chu. We're having a little connectivity issues with her until we get her back. My panel is back. Thank you all for being here. I do want to discuss one of the big topics that we weren't able to address in our first panel, which is this major shakeup at the White House. Faz, let me start with you. 
Here you have Ron Klain, the chief of staff, set to depart in just a matter of weeks, sometime after the State of the Union. He has really been someone who progressives have a good relationship with. I spoke to someone on the Hill who said he's someone who Mitch McConnell feels like he can have a straightforward conversation with and can work with. How big of a deal is this in Jeff Zients? Ron is very hard to replace. He's very good at his job. He's very competent, works extremely hard. He seems to respond to every tweet or phone call or email simultaneously. I don't know how he does it, but he's very good at his job and very straightforward, very honest. I think that Jeff Zients and my interactions with him is also a very decent person who cares about making government function and reflects the decency of Joe Biden. I think the challenge for him, though, is this is a very highly political environment. Mm. You're heading into a potential re-election. You got the Republican leading the House. And I think it's not a governing majority. It's it's really combat. And this is a bit of warfare that I don't know, I don't know if that's his um, biggest skill set. And he may need some people around him who accentuate that. Rick, what, what do you make of this and that point? I mean, here we are. The president is expected to announce he's running for re-election. He hasn't officially done it yet. But assuming he does, I mean, that's going to be a key part of this role that Jeff Zeinst is going to take over, knowing what you know of a Jeff Zeinst. Is he the person to lead this yeah, presidency into 2024? Um, I know Ron from MSNBC, who I'm appearing on television <laughs> with him. And you're right, he's uh, always honorable and decent and has answered my emails. <laughs> but, but um, look, being chief of staff is just an impossible job under any circumstances or any presidents because it's such a, a huge role. People don't last uh, forever there. Uh, I haven't heard what he's going on to do next. Is there the possibility that he does play a role in the political campaign as opposed to uh, being chief of staff? And maybe that's the, the outside because he has served in that role with uh, the president uh, and other roles for when he was senator for a very, very long time. So. I suspect he'll stay somewhat close to President Biden. I think you're absolutely right about that. And my reporting suggests that Ron is going to be very engaged in 2024 on the outside. But Lisa, take us yeah. inside the reaction on Capitol Hill this right. weekend when we all learned about this news. What were folks saying to you? Because again, he, from my conversations, was seen as someone who can work with progressives, who can work with yeah. Republicans, who can work with moderate Democrats. I mean, how are they taking this news on the Hill? Do they think that they'll be able to work with divided government with Jeff Zients? Yeah, I think a lot of Democrats reflect what we just heard from Fez, which is that Ron Klain is really going to be hard to replace. However, there is a hope um, that perhaps there can be a more unified and clear everyone on the same page kind of thrust going forward for some Democrats. There were moments in the early, that first year of the Biden agenda, where there was internal dispute. And that's going to happen. And Joe Biden sometimes encourages that. Mm. He likes to have that on his staff. But they're hoping that things can be maybe not quite as rocky and fiery. And actually, they probably will be regardless who's there, because most of the Biden agenda, most of that kind of push has already happened. This is happening at an extraordinary moment, though, where we now have a current president and a former president who are being investigated by a special counsel. And Jeff Science is going to have to take over that as well, Faz. I yeah, mean, that's that, going to be a big part of his portfolio. Now. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Science has had a good career managing the fallout of Obamacare, you know, like the budget negotiations, uh, COVID, of course. Those were diving into the bowels of government, making it work. This is not that. This is combat and warfare for on a political scale in which, you know, I think he's going to be tested. And I think people will want to push him around and hopefully he's got some desire and ability to engage in a different kind of skills than he's done in the past. All right. We now do have Congresswoman Judy Chu. Thank you to all of you. Congresswoman, I hope you can hear me. Thank you so much for joining me. My deepest condolences to you and to your community for the loss of those 11 lives. Can you take me inside your heart and your head when you learned about this shooting? It has been a horrific 24 hours. Uh, I woke up yesterday morning learning about a gunman who shot 10 people dead and wounded 10 others. Now that number has increased to 11. But what was even more terrifying for the community was that the shooter was active and they didn't know whether they should go to events or not, whether the shooter might just come in and do this to them. So uh, we were urging them to continue on with their lives and continue on to these Lunar New Year celebrations, uh, continue to send their kids to the schools. 
uh, but you could see the fear in their eyes. So it wasn't until 5 p.m. Uh, when Sheriff Luna uh, announced that the suspect had indeed been caught and that he uh, committed suicide in that white cargo van, um, that our community could feel relieved at not being threatened by a shooter. But now yeah. we are in this period of of recovery, mm. of healing. And I'm hearing the stories about the victims. In fact, I just came from uh, the crisis center, which is uh, helping the victims and doing those legal notifications. Uh, there is going to be so much involved in their recovery. And some of the victims that are in the hospitals yeah. are really have, having a time with it. In fact, seven are still in hospitals and some are incubated. Well, I know you will continue to stay close with those families. I understand you spoke with President Biden as well. Can you characterize that conversation? Did you ask him for anything specifically for your community? And what did he say to you? I spoke to President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. President Biden and Vice President Harris expressed their deep condolences and they wanted to make sure that the community knows that they have been, been thinking about us, but also they provided all kinds of federal resources. In fact, I just have to say that uh, the federal resources such as the FBI, ATF, and all kinds of agencies were there in force yesterday helping us to yeah. capture the suspect. And um, they want to condolences to the victims as well. Congressman, I know you have called for uh, expanded background checks. You've called for stiffer gun legislation. Is this a moment where you will revive the push for that? Or given the fact that uh, Washington is now divided, do you think that this is a moment where that can't happen? We have to continue to raise our voices. I, of course, have a greater reason to raise my voice, but, um, you know, we cannot stop. We know that uh, it is a tough road in this Congress, but we need everybody's help to tell their representatives if they are reluctant to vote for such things, this kind of mass shooting could happen in their communities. It could happen to their constituents. It could happen to their family and to their loved ones. Uh, and if we want to make sure that everybody is safe at, and that everybody can be at peace, then we have to stop this proliferation of gun violence. Yeah. Congresswoman Judy Chu, our condolences again. Thank you for joining us. Our thoughts will be with you and your community. Thank you for being with us this hour. I'm back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson right now. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.